The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Welcome back to another episode of Francis Watch, sponsored by Novus Ordo Watch. I'm your host, Stephen Heiner, and with me as always, I have His Excellency Bishop Donald Sanborn, Rector of Most Holy Trinity Seminary in Brooksville, Florida, and Father Anthony Chicada, Associate Pastor of St. Gertrude the Great Catholic Church in Westchester, Ohio. Your Excellency, Father, thanks for joining us. Ah, nice to be here. Happy to be here, Stephen. Well, unfortunately, once more into the breach, uh, as usual, Three months is plenty of time for Bergoglio to give us plenty of ammunition to deal with. And as we do in every episode, for those listeners who may be new to Francis Watch, what we try to do every episode with His Excellency and Father is discuss issues regarding Bergoglio, either things, uh, Jorge Bergoglio, also known as Francis to some people, and discuss stories that he's either directly involved in or indirectly involved in. His Excellency and Father give us the Catholic perspective, we give you Bergoglio's perspective, and we allow you to draw your own conclusions. We're going to start with, unfortunately, Gaudete et Exultate, which was an apostolic exhortation that was issued in April, so just after we are last recording. And I'm going to, rec- I'm going to read a couple passages we don't have time to get into it. It's not really part of today's episode to to deal with the entire document, but I'm I'm going to read two excerpts and and then I'll ask His Excellency first and then Father what what their reaction was if they had read it at all. Not infrequently, contrary to the promptings of the spirit, the life of the church can become a museum piece or the possession of a select few. This can occur when some group of groups of Christians give excessive importance to certain rules, customs, or ways of acting. The gospel then tends to be reduced and constricted, deprived of its simplicity, allure, and savor. This may well be a subtle form of Pelagianism, for it appears to subject the life of grace to certain human structures, only to end up fossilized or corrupt. <laughs> and further, it is not healthy to love silence while fleeing interaction with others to want peace and quiet while avoiding activity, to seek prayer while disdaining service. Everything can be accepted and integrated into our life in this world and become a part of our path to holiness. So our good friend Pelagianism, and it's not healthy to love silence, Your Excellency. Well, again, the man, I I know I always say the same thing, but he always says the same thing. And that is the stupidity of this man. He doesn't know what Pelagianism is. Pelagianism is uh, a heresy from the 5th century AD, which said that you, uh, that you do not need grace in order to lead a good life and go to heaven. That grace is merely an addition. It is something that helps you. That's the heresy. Right? What he describes as Pelagianism here, that the, that the life of grace, is, uh, it appears to subject the life of grace to certain human structures 
I mean, this is outer space with regard to the nature of Pelagianism. He doesn't know the first thing about Pelagianism. All right. I mean, this is clear. He hasn't even read the comic book about Pelagianism. Remember, I was growing up, you could always get the classic comics if you didn't read the book. And, I think you know, uh, now, Your Excellency, there's there would be probably even Pelagium for dummies. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think that, yeah, he hasn't read this. He hasn't gotten to the first page of the comic book. And this is all uh, in a summary of something that popes have never said. Catholics never say this, that the life of the church can become a museum piece or the possession of a select few. What is he talking about? The dogmas of the Catholic Church? Of course he is. This man hates dogma. He's a modernist. Right, as I think Bishop Fele said years ago, he's a perfect modernist. So he detests dogma. He detests people setting up the commandments as something that you must obey, as we know from the sixth and ninth commandment, which he trashed in the, his uh, encyclical uh, Amoris Laetitia, which is you know the joy of adultery. That's how it's translated. We know that he hates any idea of an external commandment coming upon you and demanding obedience and an external dogma demanding assent. He hates that stuff like all modernists. So any Catholic who would be described as Catholic for the past 2000 years, who has everything in common with every Catholic that went before him in obedience to the commandments and in adherence to dogmas are now called Pelagians out of the stupidity of this man who doesn't even know what a Pelagian is. If a Pelagian bit him, he wouldn't know what it was. So, I mean, it's the whole thing is so bollocked up and so loaded with modernism, stupidity, and ignorance that you, know, you don't even know where to begin. Well, it's not, it sounds pretty dangerous, Father Chikata. I wouldn't want to get a Pelagian bite myself. <laughs> <laughs> certainly not, and I wouldn't want to retreat into silence about it. Certainly, which <laughs> next topic. Uh, this it is not healthy to love silence while fleeing interaction with others, to want peace and quiet while avoiding activity. This is this overthrows the whole of the contemplative religious life, the desert fathers the monastic spirituality, the idea of, of seeking God in silence and in contemplation. And what yes. you end up with uh, is a, I guess you could call it the heresy of, of activism all the time, yeah. that you're not doing anything that's uh, meritorious if you're keeping silent, if you're praying, if you're trying to mortify yourself, and you're trying to pray for others. And this is a typical rationalist attitude that uh, you found in the so-called enlightenment where they suppressed the religious orders. You had uh, Joseph the uh, sacristan in Austria suppressing the religious orders. You had them suppressed in France uh, several times. Uh, the idea is that the only thing that's, that's um, uh, really worthwhile is, uh, you know, handing out the beans in the soup kitchen. Mm -hmm. And uh, that you can't possibly please God or sanctify yourself if you uh, love silence. So it, it overthrows anything in the way of a traditional understanding of the spiritual, the contemplative life. 
it also is completely modernist in this sense that you find God in other people and by reacting, interreacting with other people. That's the whole spirit of the new liturgy, that in being together and holding hands and shaking hands and making responses and all, all of the things that you find in the new liturgy, that this in this meeting that you have uh, with the priest presiding and you know, you're singing hymns and doing other, you know, the responsorial psalm and all, that you are finding God and you're finding God in yourself uh, through the interaction with other people. Uh, that was, I remember that in the seminary. And, you know, one of the first things they did after Vatican II was to change the rules of the seminaries so that there was no silence. It used to be in the seminaries, as we have here, you cannot visit other people's rooms. You cannot talk in other people's rooms. You cannot even walk in the door. That the whole place runs on silence as a general rule of silence. And that there are certain times when you may talk. But overall, I mean, the, the day goes by and the, the place sounds like a tomb. <laughs> because yeah. they're all observing silence. And that's the way all clergy were trained, whether the religious order is active contemplative or whatever it was, but even the most active Jesuits and, and other very active orders were trained in that silence. And and they did away with that right away. And I remember that when I went into the seminary, I thought, you know, what kind of a place is this? You know, everybody's talking. And, and that was because of that modernist principle that God is in you and you, you discover God by interaction with other people. And you don't discover God in prayer. Uh, St. Teresa said there is but one place to find God, and that is in prayer. And that, that principle is gone. And the silence is not cultivated for itself. It's cultivated for the sake of prayer. That is recollection, thinking about God. So they don't have the distraction of constantly talking with other people and interacting. And that's all distraction. You drag that into the chapel after you've been yakking it up the whole day. You drag, drag all of that into the chapel. You, you can't meditate because your, your mind is, is so far into worldly things and other people's problems and, and jokes you may have heard, etc. That, that there's no possible way that you can draw your mind back toward God. So, you know, this is so, so very typical of modernists and typical of exactly what they did in Vatican II. And, and yes, you know, criticizing, and this is also Americanism. Americanism condemned by Pope Leo XIII, that is emphasizing the active virtues over the passive ones. Passive ones being contemplation, et cetera. Uh, active means that you have to get out of the sacristy and get into the, the, the street. And that was another typical theme of the modernists and the Americanists uh, in the 1890s and early part of the 20th century. I showed the seminarians for the last installment of my liturgy classes down at Most Holy Trinity um, <clears throat> uh, videos that I found on the internet of the different uh, manifestations of the Novus Ordo. So we had some conservative uh, ones that were um, uh, played. And then we had a, a typical suburban American. Uh, we, uh, you know, of course, had the, the usual things, the Easter Bunny doing the Prayer of the Faithful, the um, uh, all, all sorts of non polka mass, etc. But one of the things that really struck me was the uh, 
lifetine masses that are put together in most dioceses now, now for teenagers, that before the mass, there is all of this uh, talking and yakking uh, and uh, the whole din of noise in the church. And they're encouraged to do this because this is part of the horizontality of it. And then when you get around to the uh, uh, so-called sign of peace, I mean, that takes about five minutes, and it's five minutes of noise, supposedly before you're going to receive Holy Communion. But it's, it's this, this idea, uh, once again, of horizontality, and that uh, this is where, where God is to be found. Did either of you subject yourselves to reading any part of this? What, the document? Yes. Just the salient parts. I, I read it over. You might say that. I mean, most of it is nonsense and garbage. But I, I read it over and found the salient parts. I figured it wasn't Lent, so there wasn't a need to necessarily punish yourself in that way. No, I mean, you know, most of what he says is just nonsense and negligible. I mean, you know, just don't pay attention to it. So what you're saying is, is if only he loved silence. Yeah, yeah, if he could cultivate silence, that would be a wonderful thing. Although, the more he opens his mouth, the, the more people come to our masses. So, you know, it could work against us. <laughs> the second thing I'd like to discuss comes to us from La Stampa, the Vatican Insider a portion of La Stampa. And it's from the mouth of Cardinal Walter Casper, lauded by some as a conservative. Oh, my goodness. And this is in regards to belief in transubstantiation is unnecessary for intercommunicating spouses. He says, the two encyclicals of John Paul II on ecumenism and the Eucharist, respectively, insist very much on the Protestants' adherence to the Catholic doctrine on the Eucharist, that is, on manifesting the faith which the Catholic Church professes, to quote John Paul II himself. This seems very important to me, because the sacraments are sacraments of faith. For a true Lutheran, based on confessional writings, the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist is obvious. The problem is the liberal and the reformed Calvinist Protestants. Especially with them, the problem must be clarified in pastoral conversations. Certainly, one cannot ask of a Protestant what is normally asked of a Catholic. It is enough to believe this is the body of Christ given for you. Luther also insisted on this. Even a normal Catholic believer does not know the most developed doctrines on transubstantiation or consubstantiation. And I know His Excellency might normally, might normally say here, speak for yourself, buddy. <laughs> Ask a third grader, you know. I mean, <laughs> and either well, one of I don't know about, I think he might be right about third graders today. I mean, <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> You know, uh, yeah, I don't think the average Catholic would know, I mean, Nova Sordo Catholic would know what transubstantiation is, but that, that's their own fault because they don't teach it. I knew what it was when I was in the third grade. It was a hard word to spell, a hard word to pronounce. That's how but I he, know. He's not even saying third graders. He says even a normal Catholic believer. So this would be an adult. He's intimating yeah, they don't know. I, I agree with him. They don't know what it is. So... <laughs> So why should the Lutheran have to know what it is, or the non-Catholic who's approaching the Catholic, well, the Novus Ordo communion wafer, why, why should he have to know it if the Catholic, quote-unquote, doesn't know it and doesn't believe it? 
And if you look at the the uh, statistics, I mean, belief in the real presence and transubstantiation is is very much a minority among Novus Ordo Catholics. I remember someone telling me an anecdote um, about someone who uh, uh, the, the the husband of someone who worked in his office, and a, a secretary whose husband was a Novus Ordo deacon, and uh, this guy uh, knew a fair amount. Uh, the, this this uh, uh, traditional Catholic knew a fair amount about the Catholic faith. And so he's talking with his deacon, making conversation, and he mentions transubstantiation. And the deacon says, well, uh, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. And so he said, well, and then he went on to explain it. And the deacon said, well, that sounds like a miracle. I said, well, yeah, it is. (laughs) No, I I agree with this man, but really uh, it's it's off the subject because even if the Protestant made a a very, very clear declaration of his belief in transubstantiation, that does not entitle him to receive a Catholic Eucharist because you have to believe everything. Not just transubstantiation, Mm -hmm. but the new code of canon law permits this. This is nothing new. New code of canon law permits it in certain circumstances and this, you know, all sorts of uh, qualifications on it. But once again, you take the pin and blow up the balloon, it doesn't matter what qualifications you put on it. Once you destroy the principle that the Holy Eucharist is meant only for Catholics, uh, then you know the door is open to anything at all. Uh, the the reason that the, ca- the Catholic sacraments can only be given to Catholics and as particularly the Holy Eucharist is because the Holy Eucharist is the uh, is the sign of unity of the Catholic Church. That the it, it is uh, to give that to a non-Catholic totally perverts the Holy Eucharist. It's 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 very substance and, and uh, deep meaning. It totally perverts it because it is the, the very symbol, the sign of the church's unity, the unity of the mystical body of Christ. So to give it to someone outside the church is to commit a sacrilege. So you are outside the church if you profess doctrines that are false doctrines uh, and you belong to a non-Catholic sect. And this is the, the question here of people belonging to a non-Catholic sect. Can they go up to receive the, you know, what purports to be Holy Communion? And so this is a, a perversion of the sacrament, but which comes from the new code of canon law of 1983. And this is merely an application of all the principles contained in that new code. Father Chicada, His Excellency is mentioning the code of canon law could someone in the Novus Ordo argue that this is a disciplinary matter and disciplinary matters can be changed? Well, of course they would. Uh, they, uh, because they, if they are not taught, nor do they understand the principles that uh, Bishop Sanborn had been talking about. And it's a, it's a theological principle that uh, obviously you, know, you have to be a Catholic and have Catholic belief n- not only in the Eucharist, but in uh, the rest of Catholic uh, doctrine and the rest of Catholic dogma in order to receive the Eucharist that it's all it's all a uh, package deal but uh, and, and you, know, you have to be reconciled to the Catholic Church 
you have to repudiate your heresies and have the excommunication lifted and be reconciled to the Catholic Church, in addition to believing. Yes, you can't just walk up. Right. That sounds, that sounds very tedious. I'd rather just have an encounter and, <laughs> right. and, and deal with it right then. Well, the, the happy thought here is that uh, this is, in nearly all cases, a piece of bread. So, and, and in nearly all cases, the people attending the new mass think of it as only as a piece of bread. So, you know, it, it, it's a different religion. It's a different church in that sense. You know, I mean, you're dealing with uh, people that have nothing in common with the Catholic faith, except that they claim to be Catholics. And, and so they're, they're sort of playing, like playing house, you know, little kids playing house, you know, I'm the cardinal and, and you're the, you know, the, the Lutheran or something. You know, it, 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 it has no relationship to Catholicism, any of this. And so uh, that, that's the happy aspect of it is that probably, and most probably there is no sacrilege involved, uh, at least, you know, in, in reality, because it's just a piece of bread anyway. But there is sacrilege involved in principle and in theory, because this sacrament, which by by Catholic do- doctrine is the sacrament of the unity of the church, is is given to non-Catholics, and that's very serious. Just shortly after our last Francis watch, there was another Scalfari bomb. That's what I've gotten used to. Is that Scalfari will do these interviews? He has no recordings, and there are no denials that come, and this isn't a new teaching from Francis. We've heard it before, but it's just been repeated. Scalfari asks, Your Holiness, in our previous meeting, you told me that our species will disappear in a certain moment and that God, still out of his creative force, will create new species. You have never spoken to me about the souls who died in sin and will go to hell to suffer it for eternity. You have, however, spoken to me of good souls admitted to the contemplation of God. But what about bad souls? Where are they punished? Francis, they are not punished. Those who repent obtain the forgiveness of God and enter the rank of souls who contemplate him. But those who do not repent and cannot therefore be forgiven disappear. There is no hell. There is the disappearance of sinful souls. This is the third time around on this one, if I'm not mistaken. So third and, time's the charm, Father? Uh, well, I don't, wouldn't exactly call it a charm. But <laughs> this is... Uh, Obviously, this is what he believes, and this is what he wants to communicate. And the uh, you know it is is a denial of several um, uh, several defined Catholic dogmas uh, about the uh, eternity of hell, about the immortality of the soul, etc. And he uh, uh, puts his message out uh, this way to uh, uh, spread this particular idea to undermine uh, the Catholic teaching. Again, it's, it's a case with him of, uh, you know, letting the horse out of the barn. There's no unsaying what he said. There's no unspreading of, of, of the ideas he's come out with in the uh, Scalfari interview, especially since they've, they received so much publicity. So people... Uh, easily, no matter who is elected after this guy, can make uh, the argument, well, you know, a previous pope uh, said that, in effect, there is there uh, is no hell, so that's not something that we particularly have to worry about and, and, and preach about. 
Yes, and, and he has the boldness to say what has been at the very least implicit for the past 50 years since Vatican II, and that is that everybody goes to heaven. John Paul II said it. You know, no one will, first he set down the principle that all men are attached to Christ by, the, by virtue of the incarnation. So that means the whole human race. And then no, no one will snatch them from me. No one whom the Father has given them, given to me, will snatch them from me. I, I'm, I'm paraphrasing the gospel. And that has always been applied to the elect. That is, those whom God has chosen to go to heaven. That has always been the interpretation of that verse. But John Paul II applies it to the whole human race. The whole human race belongs to Christ in virtue of merely the incarnation. So already this is practically stated. I mean, you have to do some of the logic, but uh, in, in John Paul II's first encyclical, you know, it goes back to 1978, uh, 79. And then uh, it's also implicit in you know, the use of the white vestments and all of the preaching that goes on at these funerals uh, where as I always say, you know, the, the Italian grandmother is making spaghetti in heaven, or the the, uh, you know, the 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 interviewer who died. I remember that was one is interviewing God now. You know, uh, people going to heaven just on a regular basis uh, because they were nice people. Talk about Pelagianism. All they had to do was be nice people. She had to make nice spaghetti, and all he had to do was interview people in a competent way, and then you go straight to heaven. Or like those um, those uh, astronauts that died in that uh, that that um, whatever the, the that shuttle that broke broke up in the sky, they were all sent to heaven by the priests that went to uh, speak at their memorial service. They're all seeing God now. You know, they're they're. You know, this has been the constant preaching of the Novus Ordo for years. Everybody goes to heaven. And, and so for him to say there's no hell and everybody's going to heaven, or, or at least, you know, I guess for the, the Hitlers of this world, there's a, dis, you know, you get, you get uh, uh, disintegrated. I guess, you know, not everybody can make it to heaven. So you just get disintegrated. But that there's no hell, uh, this was also stated by John Paul II. He said uh, something like uh, hell exists, but I don't think there's anybody in it. He said something like that. So, you know, this is uh, a theme among the Novus Ordites. I wonder the if the opinion has changed. <laughs> <laughs> His views have, may have somewhat modified. <laughs> yes. Well, on, yes. On this point, Your Excellency, um, uh, one of the useful phrases that I've picked up from popular discourse or, is where they tell you how something uh, applies on the ground or how it works on the ground. And that's taken from uh, military lingo, I guess, that, uh, you know, it's one thing to look uh, at the scene of a battlefield or uh, to look at what your enemies are doing uh, from above. And that can give you a, uh, an excessively uh, uh, rosy picture. It's another thing actually to be down on the ground. And mm -hmm. I've thought of that with regard to the Novus Ordo, that how, how this works out on the ground is that um, when, when it comes to, for instance, the uh, masses that uh, I show the seminarians, I said that this is an indication, your typical American Novus Ordo celebration works out like this. This is the reality of the Novus Ordo on the ground. 
Well, so too, when it comes to the what you're talking about, this uh, uh, theology of the redemption merely through the incarnation and the abolition of hell and everyone uh, going to heaven, that uh, came up very, very soon after Vatican II. And I uh, personally witnessed it because I was an organist and uh, you put your name on a list, uh, you know, and make yourself available to play for funerals. So I played for funerals all over the Archdiocese of Milwaukee, and it was always the same thing. It was the white vestments and the idea that everyone is, is going to have it. And that stuff started in the 60s, uh, in the mid-1960s, mid and that's the reality of how this uh, false doctrine we're talking about actually works out on the ground, as it were. It's been it's been going on there for ages, and I guess you're right that Bergoglio's just uh, just enunciated it. He's got the boldness and I'll say the honesty to come out and say these things. Yeah, he has the uh, humility and the ambition, Your Excellency. Yes, that's correct. I think he's right about that. You know, that, that the, whereas the others would use subterfuge to say it and, and would say it implicitly, he comes out and says it explicitly. I think it's important for our listeners realizing this is episode 35 of Francis Watch. So we have many under our belt. And if you haven't heard His Excellency and Father discuss this theme before, he is no revolutionary. He is just finally implementing Vatican II after a long delay by the so-called conservatives. This is no no great revelation to his excellency and father. They've seen this all before. So what looks like revolution is just the 60s all over again. Yes, it was all there. We saw it, Father Chiquetta saw it, I saw it, and, and we're practically contemporaries in the same situation, the college seminary. And we both had the same experiences. Uh, and uh, so it's nothing new for us. Uh, we've seen it for 50 years. So. It's, it's, it's just very interesting now to see it come up um, so explicitly and uh, to see that there still are people, uh, at least, who do react against it somewhat. And I guess that's, uh, that's quite consoling. However, people like Cardinal Burke and others should have screamed at the top of their lungs about that. But nothing came out. No, there was no, no real reaction to that. I mean, that's such a blatant heresy. For those As the saying used to go, uh, God must have loved spineless bishops because he made so many of them. <laughs> <laughs> I have heard that before. Yeah. <laughs> For our listeners who want to look up the, the, the quote that we read about uh, the Scalfari and, and Francis exchange was from Arate Chaley. So not only is there no hell, but atheists go to heaven. Uh, from this account, as soon as the child was near the pontiff, he fell into his arms. It is obvious from the beginning that Emmanuel needed to be embraced, encouraged, reassured, consoled, that he needed to receive human warmth. He received it from the Pope in person. He needed to vent his anguish and pain. Bergoglio gave him a long hug. The Pope was in no hurry to let him go. The child whispered in the Pope's ear. Emmanuel asked him if his father, who was an atheist but had his four children, his two brothers and a sister baptized, went to heaven after his death and not to hell. The child's full question included a specific quote regarding the danger for Emmanuel's father to end up in hell. 
This is what Francis answered, explaining afterwards that he asked Emmanuel for permission to publicly report the question the child had whispered to his ear. If only we could cry like Emmanuel when we have pain in our hearts. He cries for his father who died and had the courage to do so before us because there is love in his heart. He points out his father was an atheist, yet he had his four children baptized. He was a good man. It's nice that a son says that about his father, that he was good. If that man was able to raise his children like that, then he was a good man. God is proud of your father. Francis then emphasizes, God has the heart of a father. Your father was a good man. He is in heaven with him, be sure. God has a father's heart. And would God ever abandon a non-believing father (laughs) who baptized his children? God was certainly proud of your father because it is easier to be a believer and have your children baptized than to be a non-believer and have your children baptized. Pray for your father. Talk to your father. That is the answer. I'm sorry I wasn't able to make it all the way through without laughing, Your Excellency. How it's many heresies are in that? Oh, I mean, it's loaded. Huh. It's, pray, it's pray to your father. I don't know if you know that. In the Italian, it's pray to your father. Mm. So Santo Subito on top of all that. <laughs> I checked it. I listened to his Italian. I played it a couple of times, and it's true. A suo padre. Okay. To your father, uh, and any in any case, yeah, there's, it's just so loaded. I don't know where to start. The first of all, it is impossible to be a good person if you're an atheist, because there is no possible excuse of ignorance. See, if you're a Lutheran or a, you know some sort of non-Catholic, you have a possible excuse for your infidelity of ignorance. And if you are what we call invincibly ignorance, at least the sin of infidelity is not counted against you. All right. You might have other sins to, you know, to deal with, but the sin of infidelity is not counted against you. And this was actually uh, defined by St. Pius V, who condemned the idea that the sin of infidelity is, is uh, imputed to those who are, uh, never had the gospel preached to them. Uh, that, that was uh, 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 one of the um, tenets of the Bionists, who were the early Jansenists, uh, in, in, at the time of St. Pius V, the late uh, 1500s. So in any case, there's no possible excuse of ignorance concerning the existence of God or that God rewards those who seek him. This is said in Hebrews. And the, the existence of, by St. Paul in Hebrews, and the existence of God and that he rewards those who seek him are the two most basic dogmas that you have to believe in order to be saved. And you have to believe them with supernatural faith. And if you fail to believe them with supernatural faith, you are going to hell. Right? It's as simple as that. Because no one can get to heaven without supernatural faith. Without faith, St. Paul says, it is impossible to please God. So he has no faith. There's no possible way that this man is going to heaven. Secondly, the fact that he would bring his child to the baptismal font accuses him all the more. Because it shows that he has knowledge of the Catholic faith and that there is a certain necessity to be baptized. And to practice the Catholic faith. So he, again, has no, he just heaps coals upon himself by doing that. It doesn't 
make it better. It makes it worse for him. Others, why aren't you a Catholic? If you're bringing your child to the Catholic faith, why aren't you a Catholic? Why are you an atheist? That's the obvious question. And the answer is because he's loaded with pride and, and he's going to go to hell for it. That, that's the answer to the question. Uh, and then, uh, then there's the Pelagianism of saying that the man is going to heaven simply because he was, as it says in Italian, un uomo bravo, a nice guy. That's the way it would come out in English. He's a nice guy. You know, he probably was you know, like Al Capone, good to his mother. You know, I mean, it, it, that, that he had some aspects of natural virtue. I'm not saying he's like Al Capone, but I'm saying that was said about Al Capone that Despite all of his, you know, horrible, he was good to his mom. You know, he's real good to his mom. And this is the same thing. Atheists are capable of certain natural virtues. So, and, you know, it's easy to be nice. It's easy to say hello to people. You know, it happens every day when we visit stores and we go in, you know, hello, how are you? It's very easy to be sociably nice. That doesn't make you a good Catholic. That doesn't make you a good person. And very often people who are socially nice have an underside, which is really horrible. You know, they, they can put on a good show of, you know, how are you and all. And, and you say he's a nice guy or she's a nice lady. But that doesn't mean that they are virtuous people. They might be adulterers. They might be fornicators. They might be atheists. They might be agnostics. And the sin of infidelity is such a, an evil, evil sin, far worse than sins of impurity, far, far worse. Sins of impurity are sins of weakness. The sin of infidelity, what we, atheism, agnosticism, is a sin that is deep and rooted in the pride of the devil and is very displeasing to God, far more than sins of weakness. So... We're dealing with, uh, you know, but, you know, we tend to think of, oh, you know, of murder or, or, you know, in sins of impurity. Those are the real sins. We don't think of these sins of, of infidelity to God as sins because the modern world doesn't care about religion or faith. You know, so what if he's an atheist as long as he's a nice guy? And this is exactly what Bergoglio is saying about this person. And he's deceiving that young child into uh, making him think that uh, and, and and he's turning him into a heretic You're, he turns him into a pelagian my father's in heaven because he's uh, he's a nice guy i think that's what bothers me more than anything your excellency is that the young man there is a there is the flame of truth within him because asking the question means that he was ready to hear potentially yes that his father was in hell he wouldn't ask the question if there wasn't a doubt in his mind, mm-hmm. if he really believed his father right. was in heaven, he's asking the man who he thinks is the authority on this issue. Right. And instead of telling him the truth, he tells him this. Right. It, the man died apparently impenitent. And there's only one answer. If your father died impenitent, there's no possible way that he could go to heaven. And he should have used that to exhort the child to practice the faith and lead a good life and pray that he have a holy death at the end of his life, unlike his father. That's what he should have said. I can't think of any way that would be more effective in destroying his faith to say that, well, it really doesn't matter. 
that, uh, you, you know, uh, uh, despite all of this, despite, as you say, the, the sins of, of uh, uh, infidelity, that there's no consequences for this disbelief. So naturally, the, the idea is, well, if my father uh, could be an atheist and still go to heaven, uh, then the practice of, of uh, the Catholic faith, such as they would call it, uh, really isn't all that important. And I might as well be an atheist as well, because if it, it, it's all the same. It doesn't make any difference. God doesn't care. Right. That, that's exactly the message. And, and, and he corrupted the faith of that child by that simple conversation. Your Excellency Father, why do you think that the modern world is so obsessed with this notion of being a good man, good person? This is the sainthood of our age, is to be a good person. Well, what do you mean by good person? Does that mean you have social and civic virtues? You, you say hello to people, you're a nice guy, you mow your lawn, uh, you, uh, you, know, uh, you might uh, help somebody out, shovel help the old, snow. Help old ladies across the street. Yes, yeah, that there is a very limited and narrow definition of good person. At the same time, there, the modern world is willing to excuse adultery, fornication, all sorts of other perversions, uh, and also infidelity, uh, religious indifferentism, and practically the breaking of every single commandment. See, but it, it, there's, a, there's this narrow gauge, we might say, of what constitutes a nice person. Uh, if you believe in diversity, you're a nice person, you know, so you don't insist on, on anybody uh, obeying any commandment at all, all right? And, you know, and uh, you, you, you're liberal, you're, you're leftist, see, that's a nice person. If you are one of the deplorables, then you're not a nice person, and you're going to go to hell, probably, that, you know, for them. You know. It's true. I mean, that's what a nice person is. Uh, you know, just somebody with basic social and civic virtues, you might say. Part of the, the idea of, of uh, human, human psychology is, well, you want to think naturally somehow some things are good and other things are bad. And what you do under the uh, theology of niceness is you certainly limit those things that uh, are bad, right? Not helping the old lady go across the street where as you do it yourself, that, that, that would be something that uh, would be bad. Or a, um, uh, let's say some, uh, some sort of a sexual abuse of a child, that would be bad, but, uh, and you wouldn't do it yourself and you would look down upon those who do it. But when it comes to adultery or any other things connected with the sixth and ninth commandment, well, you see that those are certain, those, you look upon as perfectly okay. So you, by narrowing the field of, of what is expected of you, you still have the opportunity to well, feel pretty good about yourself in helping the little old lady across the street or recycling or whatever. Uh, but there are certain other things that, uh, you know, you don't see as bad as all. I forgot about how you know how recycling makes you a good person as well. Oh yes, yes. I, I mean, it's I think overall, for me, let me tell you. <laughs> overall, uh, I think we could say that this episode with the child, His Excellency was referring to the original Italian, was a calamita. But uh, <laughs> this was not. This is not what Bergoglio considers a calamita. In, in, indeed, he has something else in mind. 
then there is something else. This Holy Spirit is a disaster because he never tires of being creative. Now, with the new forms of consecrated life, he is truly creative with the charisms. It is interesting. He is the author of diversity, but at the same time, the creator of unity. This is the Holy Spirit. And with this diversity of charisms and many things, he makes the unity of the body of Christ and also the unity of consecrated life. And this too is a challenge. Well, so if you mean by the religious life, uh, that, um, uh, you know, there's, there uh, are great charisms and great fruits coming from this. Why are all the convents and seminaries and monasteries <laughs> empty? You know, yes. I, I mean... Well, they got tired of all that silence, Father. Yes. No. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, if this... you want to talk, talk about a calamita, uh, you're, you're yeah. certainly reading the signs of the times, as Vatican II would say, you're reading the signs of the times rather backward it seems, or you're illiterate when it comes to the signs of the times. So the, the uh, evidence, uh, the evidence when you, when he talks about consecrated life, uh, that is, I think, their, their lingo for uh, religious life in the Novus Ordo. And it, it, uh, it is, in fact, a, uh, a disaster because of this idea of um, uh, creativity that we're going to constantly be doing something different. And pretty soon you have to close down the convent, you have to close down the monastery because of it, because you lose your identity as a religious. You lose the identity that comes with leaving, living a truly consecrated life of silence and of uh, sticking to the apostolate of, let's say, your religious order. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it sounds something like Shiva, isn't Shiva the god of destruction and of creation or something? Or, you know, the generation. Something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's, it's a destroyer of worlds. Yeah. yeah and, uh, I, and, well, he was uh, one of the beings used by the Holy Ghost, I think Vatican II said. <laughs> yes. I think, how many arms does he have? I think he's got. Uh, you know, uh, I but think that there, reminds there, me of that. Uh, there are at least eight, yeah. Yeah, uh, <laughs> he's not the one with the elephant head. No, no, no. So, that's Ganesh. That's Ganesh. Okay. You have to have your Excellency. You need a lesson in keeping your means of salvation used by the Holy Ghost. <laughs> sort of yes. you know, yes. when you see that elephant coming, you reach for the milk. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, this uh, again. You know, this again is a. It's a stupid statement, you know. How can you take this even seriously, what he says? How could anybody with half a brain pay attention to a, a statement like that? It's so stupid, you know, that the Holy Ghost is a disaster. I think this is the other thing, too, His Excellency. Uh, he makes blasphemy normative. Yes, he does. This, yes. is, this, is, this is no, uh, no novelty for Bergoglio. He, he, mm hmm it's just a, it's just another week and another episode of Francis Watch, a new blasphemy. Yeah, remember the the God spray business, referring to the unity of the of the Trinity, the the unity of the divine essence of the Trinity. That was God spray. Yeah, I mean, talk about how you know, just wait for the lightning to strike. I know you 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 think back to our, our very early episodes where there was no Catholic God. Yes, there's no Catholic God. Yes. You know, that's so okay. passe now. That, that, oh, that, was, yes. that was years ago, Your Excellency. Yes, yes, yes. Well, from blasphemy to, to heresy, mm -hmm. if in fact everything had ended with his death, 
and he's speaking about our Lord here, we would have in him an example of supreme self-denial, but this would not be able to generate our faith. He was a hero. No, he died, but he is risen because faith arises from the resurrection. Accepting that Christ is dead and that he died crucified is not an act of faith. It is a historical fact. Believing he is risen, on the other hand, is an act of faith. Our faith begins on Easter morning. Is that true, Your Excellency? Oh, boy. Well, uh, the, there is uh, a historical aspect, and there is uh, uh, a supernatural aspect. That was the mystery of the resurrection is an object of faith. But the fact of the resurrection is a historical fact. So you wouldn't want to say the one without excluding the other just as the fact that Christ died on the cross is a historical fact. The mystery of his and the effects of his dying on the cross is an object of faith. See, so, but he's saying, he's contrasting historical fact to believing in the resurrection. So he is saying that, that it is merely an object of belief, that there is no historical evidence to say that he rose from the dead, which again, destroys the whole foundation of believing because you can't believe except with the motives of credibility. If you're asking someone to accept the Catholic faith, to accept the divinity of Christ, you have to show to him apart from revelation, apart from the act of faith. You have to show to him the evidence of Christ having risen from the dead from a historical point of view. See, otherwise... The the faith becomes, as Kierkegaard says, you know, a blind leap. As you just say, well, I believe, uh, and and you destroy the foundations of credibility of the faith. In order to make a true act of faith, you must come to the conclusion that it is reasonable for me to make an act of faith. That is, then you are moved by grace to make the act of faith. But you must come to that conclusion, at least implicitly, that, that it is reasonable to believe. Otherwise, your act of faith is based on sand, and it will blow away. And, and so what he's doing oh, no. is destroying the, the most fundamental and most important miracle of Christ that, that uh, is the guarantee of the, uh, his divinity and of the truth of the Catholic faith, which is the historical fact of his resurrection from the dead. If Christ had never performed any other miracle, and if no other miracle had ever been performed by anybody in the church, that single act would be sufficient to prove the Catholic faith and the divinity of Christ. What do you have here, too, I uh, note in, in passing, is a typical statement, uh, such a, uh, as, you, as we would have heard in the seminary back in the 60s and 70s, that the implication is that there's uh, no connection between what they would call the Christ of faith and the Christ of history, and that resurrection, uh, the resurrection was simply uh, an act of faith reflection on the part of the early Christian community who felt themselves transformed. So yes. he is uh, repeating uh, the, uh, if you want to say it, the traditional heretical doctrine of the 1960s uh, that uh, that we all heard. So, mm -hmm. uh, 
you know, that's uh, that's exactly what we're getting here. But again, it should be no surprise. Ratzinger says the same thing. Uh, he says it more subtly, as he always does. But he says that the apostles had a faith experience of the resurrection. Uh, he denies the historicity of the resurrection, too, but much more subtly than this. Uh, and yeah. in all of his books, uh, you know, gobbledygook books where, you, you know, you read the paragraph, you know, like you think, what does that mean? But if you really analyze it, you know, he says that the that they had a faith experience of the resurrection, that they were convinced that he he rose from the dead, which is typically modernist. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah typically modernist. But, you know, he, I mean, he wore jeweled pectoral crosses, so that's... Uh, yes. Probably on Easter decision. Sunday, he probably put took, got out a real nice one on Easter Sunday. Too. Oh, I'm sure he did. Yeah. Yeah, having a faith experience, you know. We're continuing on some of the same themes. Uh, the next next piece that we'd like to discuss, the idea that baptism makes us irrevocably children of God. His Excellency has already discussed this uh, regarding the hell issue, and this is Bergoglio again uh, giving a sermon. If our parents have given us earthly life, the church has regenerated us to eternal life. We have become children in his son, Jesus. On each one of us also, reborn of the water and of the Holy Spirit, the celestial father has his voice resound with infinite love, which says, you are my beloved son. This paternal voice, imperceptible to the ear, but very audible to the heart of one who believes, accompanies us throughout our life without ever abandoning us. Throughout life, the father says to us, you are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. God loves us so much as a father, and he doesn't leave us alone. This is true from the moment of baptism. Reborn as children of God, we are so forever. Baptism, in fact, isn't repeated because it imprints an indelible spiritual mark. No sin can erase this mark, even if sin prevents baptism from bearing the fruits of salvation. The mark of baptism is never lost. Father, but if a person becomes a brigand of the most famous who kills people, who commits injustices, doesn't the mark go away? No, to his own shame, that son of God does those things, but the mark doesn't go away. And he continues to be a son of God who goes against God, but God never disowns his children. Have you understood this last thing? God never disowns his children. Shall we repeat it together? And God never disowns his children. A bit louder as I'm deaf and I didn't understand. God never disowns his children. There, you didn't that's, hold that's, up your hands, Stephen, as they would at the Novus Ordo. <laughs> oh, <thank laughs> <you>. Participate, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For the old responsorial psalm days. So yeah. this, this again, uh, you had already alluded to it. We were talking about the atheist, Your Excellency. But uh, interestingly, the, he quotes from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which says, even if sin prevents baptism from bearing the fruits of salvation. <laughs> but then he goes on to... Uh, say that you're basically irrevocably a son or daughter of our Lord. No, well, it's true that the mark of baptism is indelible. That is true. And it is not erased by mortal sin. But the adoption as son of God is erased by mortal sin. That's why you go to hell. That in the state of grace, you are an adoptive son of God, just as our Lord is the natural son of God, because you are conformed to Christ by sanctifying grace. And therefore, the, this conformity to Christ uh, makes you an adoptive child of God. It, mortal sin destroys that. Uh, and, and, you know, the, the children of God do not go to hell. <laughs> 
<laughs> I mean, they have abandoned God. That's why they go to hell. And and uh, it's also true that God will only, according to Saint Alphonsus, only permit a certain amount of sins in people. And after they have reached that level of sin or that quantity of sin, we might say, uh, abandons them. And it was he does not call them back. When you fall into mortal sin, it's like falling into a well. And the only way that you're going to get out of it is by God sending a rope down to you by means of actual grace. That is the grace of repentance, contrition, whereby you are contrite, you confess your sins, and you come back. You cannot get out of that well on your own. And so you lose the divine sonship by mortal sin. And you regain it by contrition and confession. But again, this is the business of everybody going to heaven. Yeah, and um, uh, this time it's it's um, uh, this time it's through baptism and uh, universal salvation. And of course, what it obviously sounds like is a spin on the Protestant "once saved, always saved," and that once once you make that uh, that act of uh, accepting uh, Jesus Christ as your personal savior, as they would say, uh, then uh, that's it. And that's something that, uh, that you can lose. So from an ecumenical point of view, I guess this, is, this uh, works, out as, uh, works out as well too. But obviously it overthrows everything. It uh, uh, under, uh, overthrows everything uh, about you know, the, the whole economy of salvation and justification and grace uh, and sin, etc. So you might as well take all of the dogmatic theology uh, treatises and just throw them out the window with this statement. I mean, it, delivered in this three-month period, Your Excellency and Father, it seems that he's doing a full-court press for the One World Church. So he's telling atheists that they can go, even if you have sinned, don't worry, there's no hell anyway. Uh, and if you've been baptized, don't worry, you'll, you'll never be disowned. And uh, in part... And maybe because God made us that way, Your Excellency. Uh, uh, the quote that resonated made headlines all around the world and led to a bunch of news stories precisely as he knew that it would was a homosexual man, unfortunately, who'd been abused uh, when he was a child, who then went on to the newspapers to explain his encounter with Bergoglio. And he said, he told me, Juan Carlos, that you are gay does not matter. God made you like this and loves you like this, and I don't care. The Pope loves you like this. You have to be happy with who you are. We're going to file this under the who am I to judge rubric, Your Excellency and Father. <laughs> well, first of all, uh, the appetite for same-sex uh, relations is a disordered appetite, right? because the object of it is disordered. The reason why the object is disordered is that two males or two females cannot procreate, and the whole purpose of any kind of sexual pleasure is is procreation. The sexual act and the sexual pleasure that accompanies it is for the purpose of procreation. All right. So, if two males and two females cannot procreate, that you then you have a disordered act. If you have a uh, an appetite for a disordered act, the appetite becomes disordered. All right, it is it is a problem. It is something wrong with you. 
Okay, just like anything could be wrong with you, either from birth or from something you acquire. You know, there's there's a discussion whether uh, homosexuals are, are born with this appetite or whether they acquire it. No matter, just as you can acquire any kind of disorder or be born with any kind of disorder, physical disorder, mental disorder, whatever it is, so you can be born with or you can acquire this disorder. All right. That said. You can't say that God made you that way. God is not the source of disorder. Now, you know, we don't know what the source of the disorder is, but you can't say that God made you that way and that he's happy with you that way. Any more than you would say to somebody who has polio or, you know, has all kinds of disorders that could happen. Brain disorders or Siamese twins. For example, God made you that way, and he's happy with you that way. You have a serious problem if you're attached to another human being, you know, and you have the same stomach and the same heart. You have a serious disorder problem, you know, and you cannot assign that to God. That must be assigned to some other source. And so to to assign that to God and say uh, that, that you know, he purposely made people homosexuals is again a blasphemy because that means that he has placed in somebody purposely an appetite for something that is intrinsically evil and again this is the this is just a repetition of uh you know what we we've heard from him before as i recall he uh received a former student and his homosexual boyfriend during a visit to uh, Washington, D.C. Now, uh, and it's the usual Bergoglio method of uh, doing something in private that obviously is, uh, is going to be publicized. And this is his way, uh, be it a question of, of uh, doctrine or be it a question of morality, of uh, him undermining a Catholic principles. And, you know, it's, it, it, it's simply not imaginable that a, a Catholic Pope would have ever done something like this. I think, I think it's, what's frustrating, Your Excellency and Father, is we're seeing a different version of what happened to that small child. That small child is coming to who he thinks is the pontiff and saying, will my father go to hell? And in a certain sense, this adult person is is waiting for someone to tell him that this is this is wrong because the entire world tells him it's fine but here he is and you can see that when he gets told it's fine he wants to tell everybody because he wants to be validated by by this man he considers to be the pontiff and it was a great injustice to him to not tell him the truth yes it encourages him to go out and act upon his appetite because god made him that way that's what it does. Instead, he should have said to him, you have a major problem. You have a major disorder, and it will cause you a lot of problems in life because you have the, the wrong tendencies with regard to sexuality, and that you have to obey a lot of special rules because of those bad tendencies. And that, that, that it, it's, it's not something to be proud of. It's something to lament. And you know, whatever the causes are of it, uh, and it's not God, it's some human cause, as there, and that, that you have to 
uh, obey special rules and, and stay in the state of grace in order to go to heaven. That's what he should have said. See, but to say, well, God made you that way is to say essentially that appetite is okay. And if the appetite is okay, that means the object of the appetite is okay. You are essentially giving somebody the license to go commit unnatural sin, which is very displeasing to God. I often get the impression, Your Excellency and, and Father, I, I'm old enough to remember the detective Columbo, who would always uh, play dumb and then ask these really incisive questions. But Bergoglio strikes me as an evil, stupid Columbo, that he'll he'll say all these things in order to lead you down a path, but there there there's four disordered ends. He's not trying to solve a case. He's trying to lead you into his false religion. I think he's astute in in his goals, you know, to to uh, really destroy Catholicism and to bring people who profess to be Catholics into a whole new religion of diversity and relativism and ecumenism in a very radical way. I mean, that has been done to a greater or lesser extent since Vatican II, but he has accelerated it so much. And the, these these bombs that he drops that are very well calculated uh, have a great effect, and he knows it. We repeatedly on, on Francis Watch have talked about uh, you know, the different levels of stupidity of this guy with the different statements that he makes. But uh, you have to give him cre credit because there's a peasant-like cunning and astuteness where uh, he uh, does know really how to throw these different bombs and that they're, they're very precisely targeted. He knows that uh, what he says obviously will be um, spread around, will be repeated. And he knows as the astute peasant that this will have a long-term effect. Well, I think that might be all that His Excellency and Father might be able to take from Francis directly, my dear listeners. And as such, we are going to turn our attention to just a few bits of other news that are related, you could say, to Francis. And one of them is regarding Father Ronald Ringrose. I was a bit bemused by this whole story, uh, Your Excellency. I was telling Father Chicada that it wasn't entirely clear to me what had happened. And maybe you might be able to shed some light for our listeners, uh, what you make of this whole situation. Well, uh, a number of years ago, I think it was 2015, uh, there was word that uh, he was uh, not saying the name uh, of Bergoglio in the canon. Uh, and, but nothing really you know, came of that. It's just that you know, he would skip it, and he would skip it publicly even on Good Friday. This is what I've heard. You know, I'm, I'm an eyewitness to this, but this is what we're told. Uh, the problem is, though, that uh, he always had this open door to the SSPX resistance, who are avidly uh, unacum. And there's they're avidly professing that Bergoglio is the, the Pope. And he even had the consecration of now Bishop Zandejas at his church. So it's sort of the uh, refuge in this country of the uh, SSPX resistance. Well, recently he has come out with something yet, uh, yet even of greater importance, and that is that the R and R position that is recognize and resist, meaning recognize Bergoglio, but resist him, which is the 
foundation of SSPX, both the liberal one and the resistance one, that we recognize him, but we don't pay attention to him. We, we act against him. We refuse anything that we find non-Catholic. He says, rightly, that that is not a Catholic position. And he said that in his bulletin, and it was up on the bulletin board. And, and so he's taken that public position that their, their uh, whole operating system, we might call it today, as R&R, uh, is false. It's not Catholic. That's very strong. I mean, that's like having the foundations of your building crumble. <laughs> this, this is how we justify ourselves. And he says it's not Catholic. He's absolutely right in saying it's not Catholic. Absolutely right. What is disturbing, though, is that he has a priest there who is R and R. So he has two uh, assistants there. One is a Sedevacantist, does not mention Bergoglio in the canon. And the other one is a Sedeplanist. He does mention Bergoglio in the canon. He professes R and R. He professes that uh, that Bergoglio is the true pope. So you have the bizarre and unique to the world, I think, situation where one mass is not in union with Bergoglio, and then the other mass is in union with Bergoglio. So that is so crazy to me that I cannot even put a, a, an adjective on it. It is so insane and crazy that, that you could have a, a situation like that. And that you have a priest functioning in your parish as an assistant who believes in something that you have condemned as non-Catholic. I mean, does that make any sense? I, I, so I'm just bewildered by the whole thing. But I would say that at least it's this progress. I would say that. Yeah, uh, Saint uh, Saint Athanasius uh, historically, well, it's one. I think it's one of the oldest. Uh, uh, traditionalist, independent traditionalist uh, ch- uh, missions or churches in uh, the United States, and it always was uh, identified very closely with the um, uh, with the R and R position, and the um, so much so I remember it saying mass there during JP 2s visit to uh, Washington. And talking about how horrible this was and uh, all the awful things that he was doing. And uh, some people getting up and saying, Viva el Papa, and then sort of taking off, which was sort of a memorable experience, I guess. <laughs> but, <laughs> but popular participation. But it was still um, uh, that it, it was uh, historically really identified with that uh, particular position uh, over the years. The other thing that um, the, the uh, other factor to play in is that it is a uh, chapel that is lay controlled. And uh, so the, uh, sometimes in places like that, the uh, local politics with the laymen who are the real owners of uh, the property come, uh, comes into play. But, you know, nevertheless, we give Father uh, Ringrose an awful lot of credit for, you know, at least taking that initial step. Yeah, I tend to, I tend to take the position of rephrasing, uh, can anything good come from Nazareth? Uh, can anything good come from lay control? Uh, Your Excellency and Father, I would answer in the negative. I have to imagine. In, in practically all cases, it has 
there has it has come to blows. In other words, that that there has been some blow up and uh, problems, deep deep problems, splits in almost all cases of lake control. In my yeah. experience, over I'll soon be ordained for forty three years on the twenty ninth of June. So uh, the the uh, that's my experience. Uh, the, it always comes to disaster because it's upside down. The the clergy should be in charge. To to have the people in charge is is the Protestant way. So that's what Protestants do. They they fire their pastors if they don't like what they're saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's just all upside down, and it was never permitted in the Catholic Church. And if you're interested, listeners, uh, Restoration Radio has an episode on uh, lay boards, lay ministers uh, in charge of church property, uh, actually a clerical conversations episode that I did with His Excellency. So if you're interested to learn more about the reasoning behind that, feel free to check that episode out on our website. We've heard about uh, ordinary ministers of communion and extraordinary ministers Father, but I've never heard of unidentified flying ministers. And <laughs> Novus Ordo Watch showed us in April, again, our, our generous sponsors who are quick to pick up on these sorts of things, uh, there was drone delivery. The Eucharist, you know, Amazon better watch out. You can get a Eucharistic drone delivery in Brazil. I don't know if either of you had a chance to see this video. Uh, yes, I did. I, I'm wondering if this is a product of artificial intelligence or uh, exactly <laughs> what <laughs> certainly doesn't show too much intelligence. Uh, it was a, um, uh, a drone uh, flying a um, something like a uh, monstrance up the aisle of uh, the church and, uh, you know, sort of waving back and forth as, as those drones do with a little uh, 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 copter type of, of uh, propellers on them, and then eventually bringing it up to the uh, idiotic-looking uh, priest uh, up, at the, uh, uh, up at the table. And, of course, everyone laughing and really having just sort of a great time at this. Um, it's just, it's simply another example of the lack of sacredness, any sense of the sacredness in the Novus Ordo rites. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a gimmick to make people talk, you know, just like the, uh, uh, the Easter bunny in the prayer of the faithful or the, uh, 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 the giant squirt gun asparagus that, uh, that they had down in Mexico. So it's, it's uh, a substitute for, uh, Catholic worship, you get people entertained. And, you know, the idea is that it exposes the notion of the real presence of the Black and Sa- Blessed Sacrament, obviously, to uh, derision, to treat it that way. Speaking of derision, there was in New York at the gala for the Met, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, which always features terrible and immodest uh, clothing something inspired by Catholicism this year. And even, uh, shockingly, some pieces were on loan from the Vatican for this display. But uh, I won't won't necessarily recommend that our listeners go to check these photos out because they are are dreadfully immodest. 
But what I was surprised by your excellency and father was I still got, I, I'm on some mailing lists for some, some people who then said, who asked me to sign a petition, you know, to, to deal with this. And I, and I thought to myself, these people are serious. They really think the action here is to sign a petition or, or they want to have some protest outside. And I don't know why people still think why they're shocked by this this kind of display or that they think the appropriate response is a petition. A- am I wrong in thinking that? You're, should we be signing petitions? Uh, it, it's living in a dream world. I mean, nothing is going to come of your petition, especially that the Cardinal of New York said there was absolutely nothing wrong with the display, you know, the use of miters and various vestments and all, that, the, that there was by grossly immodest women by, by peop, uh, people that look like tramps, uh, you know, moral tramps wearing uh, these things. Uh, I mean, anybody with you know, the most basic common sense even would say this is a terrible sacrilege that sacred things are used, uh, women showing their legs and, and, you know, in a very modest way. Um, and the cardinal said, oh, there's nothing wrong with that. It was all okay. So I mean, yeah. who, whom are you going to petition? The the devil in in St. Patrick's Cathedral. I mean, are you going to present it to him? You have to catch him at the donut shop, I think. Across the <laughs> I, uh, the uh, so you have some of these things that this one woman is wearing a uh, an emblem that in effect mocks the uh, seven dollars of of uh, Blessed Mother. Oh yes, yes. And, I mean, that. how. Uh, Oh, absolutely appalling, but no one really bats an eye at it. You know, no, no one uh, denounces it. Of course, remember in the 80s that JP2 gave a whole series of conferences in, in St. Peter's Square uh, after the Angelus on Wednesdays about primal nudity, that that was mm. a, big, uh, 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 a big topic for him you know, him and his theology of the body. So maybe that's uh, what we're talking about here. That the reason they see nothing wrong in the stuff that is so plainly wrong. And I think that's all part, and it's linked to all of that abuse that goes on in the Novus Ordo, and that is they have no sensitivity to what is immodest and immoral. Uh, you know, they, they, they are very lax about all of that and, and, uh, they have no sense of Catholic purity. Uh, anybody would be absolutely shocked I mean, to see this. It's, it's like the fashion show from hell, both yeah. with regard to the immodesty of it and with regard to the blasphemy of it. I mean, no Catholic person could look at that and say, this is something wholesome or, or there's nothing wrong with this. I mean, you, you, I mean, it just has to be condemned. But I, I think that their comfort with immodesty and immorality is, is uh, um, that's so part and parcel of the Novus Ordo. Uh, that, that is what brought on all of their abuse problems, is that, you know, there's nothing to inhibit them. That's my, my opinion. Yeah, uh, uh, His Excellency wrote a really uh, uh, excellent article uh, on that many years ago, and I think it's on traditionalmass.org still. It's called Glory into Shame. Mm-hmm. And uh, it analyzes in uh, you know, a few pages um, uh, about six or seven 
causes or, or explanations for the whole sexual abuse uh, circus in the Novus Ordo Church. And all of it is 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 uh, right on the uh, right on the mark. And rightly, he he talks about you know well there, if there's no fear of hell, you know as mm-hmm. Bergoglio would say if you're going to get zapped, uh, mm-hmm. you know and um, if uh, if adultery is permissible and if everything else is permissible, why not that? So mm-hmm. uh, all of the um, uh, all of the the moral strictures. Uh, were knocked down, and then religion ends up turning in, into psychology. They sent these guys um, who had uh, uh, actually uh, uh, not pedophiles, but ac- actually predatory homosexuals. They're never honest about saying that. Uh, mm-hmm. They sent these guys to these these different institutes where they were, you know, treated to psychological, all sorts of psychological analyses, that this supposedly was the problem. But it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's at root, it's, it's, uh, it's a moral problem. And to a certain ex- uh, extent in, in, in uh, these cases, the only thing you can do with people like this is isolate them. Uh, the mm-hmm. head of the, um, um, uh, the um, this place out in New Mexico that took care of um, uh, him as Springs, I think, that took care of um, uh, alcoholic priests. He was asked to uh, uh, treat these predatory homosexuals and pedophiles uh, toward the end of the 60s or toward the end of the 50s. And he said he wouldn't do it because uh, you couldn't really do anything with them. That uh, and he wanted to buy an island. And in fact, he bought an island somewhere in the Caribbean and said, "We'll put them all on this island and isolate them." That mm-hmm. that's the way that's that's the way to approach it. But the idea that um, uh, there's a um, uh, the, uh, uh, that there's a, a real moral problem that uh, cannot be. Um, uh, solved simply by human psychology is something that's pretty alien to the uh, modern church, which is why they had so many problems. Mm-hmm. But I recommend the article, uh, Glory into Shame. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, they are all on an island, aren't they all in Manhattan? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> uh, I, I think they've <laughs> sort of spread into different places, Stephen. Okay. <laughs> There, 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 there's no shortage of them there, though, I, I'm certain. I was, I was surprised to find out uh, that His Excellency and I had forgotten about something when we were recently in Italy for Father Duterte's ordination, that we had forgotten about the crowd surfing uh, portion of the ceremony. And I was surprised to find out Novus Ordo Watch had uh, a, a link to the Poles, and the Poles are one of the few people actually still ordaining anybody in the Novus Ordo, and this was a Dominican, no less. In uh, his habit. In his habit, and he gets a uh, crowd surf. For our listeners who don't know what the modern idea of crowd surfing is, you, you sort of lay yourself flat, and then the, the, the crowd uh, uses their hands to give you the sensation of, of surfing, as you might be, uh, towards the, I guess, the vacant sea. Uh, as 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 it might be, to drown uh, in the vacancy. I think. <laughs> uh, I don't know if either of you had a chance to see this video. Yes, I did. I saw it. Yeah, I, I did too. And I was wondering. Uh, they said it was in Poland, and I thought maybe there's a Polish joke or something with a punchline. 
but I never could figure out exactly what it was. I guess it actually happened, right? Yes, it's, uh, it's unbelievable. And uh, yeah. Father Duterte missed out on this. <laughs> and people say, you know, Poland is conservative, but that is contradicted by Father Tritek in Krakow, who, you know, because I said to him, you know, the Polish Novus Ordo is conservative. He said, I'm not at all. It is not at all. And, and uh, you know, he gave me a lot of examples. And sure enough, we were, we were in Częstochowa eating lunch outside and this parade of Novus Ordo clergy and people come up and, and you'd, you'd never call it conservative. They were acting like, like idiots. I'm just like this. And, uh, and then there's that famous video of the Dominicans, you know, doing a dance in their habits and all and, and uh, singing. And uh, Poland is not conservative. There might be as everywhere, some conservative priests, but it is not conservative. And just in, in conjunction with that, if you recall, a few months ago, Poland voted that Christ is the king of Poland. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah. And just this past week, they had a homosexual parade in Warsaw, that they, they permitted a homosexual parade in Warsaw. Now, if that isn't the ultimate in hypocrisy, to say that he is the king of Poland, and at the same time to have those people march down the streets of Poland without any, any you know, with, with perfect uh, uh, innocence, so to speak, or without perfect legality, that's what I'm trying to say, uh, is, is an offense to Christ the King. It would be better if they never said that Christ the King was the King of Poland. Uh, it's, uh, it's like putting up a crucifix in your home and then spitting upon it. It would be better that you never put it up but mm-hmm. it's a pharisaical hypocrisy to say, oh, you know, look at us, you know, Christ is the king of Poland, and then have something like that, which is an unnatural vice, which is condemned uh, by sacred scripture, I think, 11 times in, in the whole Bible, and which merited to have uh, fire and brimstone uh, rain down upon it. Uh, to permit that uh, is, is something so offensive to God. Um, and so I just want to point that out about Poland is that uh, there's a hypocrisy there. Well, and as you were saying that, Your Excellency, it also occurred to me that uh, the so-called month of pride, uh, which is unfortunately upon us at the moment, is the same month as dedicated to the Sacred Heart of Jesus. And mm-hmm. the great tragedy that these are the sort of people who could most benefit from this devotion that our Lord is is ready to to forgive and to, to welcome, but you have to bring contrition. And instead, what they're taught and what the entire world is reinforcing is that you must be proud. It's not enough to accept, but you must be proud and you must be allowed to march with pride. Well, God made you that way. And and he and he loves you that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the uh, it's uh, just the hypocrisy of that really disgusted me. I'm sorry to say, it just uh, just made me sick. And it's well, another example of we think some things are better in the church in other countries, but really they're not. It's the same mess virtually everywhere. It well, is. Well, speaking of the same mess being virtually everywhere, Novus Ordo Watch composed a a compilation of what Francis had to say about the uh, referendum on abortion in Ireland. 
And if you go to the website, you can see the 10-second video, which is of crickets chirping, <laughs> uh, which is exactly what Bergoglio had to say about the Irish referendum. I'm sure, Your Excellency, your, your mother would be turning in her oh. grave. Oh, at, my at, grandfather and everybody. At, at, at very this. thought. But why, why were people uh, among, in, in, among your congregations, Your Excellency and Father, were there people who expressed surprise at this? I had heard some surprise from some quarters. People actually thought, I think, that uh, Ireland would vote to, uh, after, after they'd approved gay marriage, that they would somehow stand up for the little children. I didn't hear anything. Uh, I did, however, hear this in Rome. Bishop Sellowy and I were in Rome just before we went out for the ordination of Father Duterte. And this Irish lady comes up to us and says, you know, pray for Ireland because we have this, this uh, referendum coming up. And so she, you know, and it turns out she's a Protestant. <laughs> yes. I said, where are you from? She said, Galway. And I'm thinking, well, Galway, she must be Catholic. You know? She's a Protestant. And I, she was very witty. And I said, what kind of a Protestant are you? She says, black. <laughs> that, that's a term, uh, you know, for Irish, meaning, you know, black Protestant, meaning, you know, just, that this is just uh, the worst kind of Protestant you could be. And, and you have to be Irish to know what that means. So she said black. And, and so that's what started it off. And, you know, she said a lot of funny things in the course of the conversation. But she said, you know, please pray for us. That, you know, and she was against abortion. And you know, if there was any place where the Novus Ordo could have stopped abortion, it was Ireland. There, there's still enough, uh, at least respect for the Catholic Church there that they could have stopped it if they wanted to. And the and the the failure was terrible. I think it was 37 to. I mean, it was a big difference, a big gap between those against and those for. I and mean, it was it on, like it a, was on generational lines as well, very clearly. Mm -hmm. The old people were still holding on to those mm -hmm. beliefs, and, and the young people who they had failed to pass the faith down to uh, disagreed. And, and, you know, Bergoglio, for all of his travels, should have flown up there. I mean, if he, you know, had any sort of Catholicism in him and blasted those who would vote for such a thing, I, I think he probably would have been successful in stopping it if he had made some big sermon against it right in Dublin. He would have stopped it. The same is true as we speak today in Argentina, his own hometown. They are voting for abortion. And he, his own homeland. And he hasn't said a word against abortion in Argentina, another almost totally Catholic country that he grew up in and was supposedly a cardinal in. Uh, the, uh, and you, you begin to think this man believes in abortion. No matter what he has said against it, he said a few things against it here, there, and the other place. But actions speak louder than word, words. Why would you not blast away, especially when you have a pulpit like the papacy? Yeah. Just blast and blast and blast. Excommunicate those who would dare vote for such a thing. Well, you would. You are against the people who, who don't believe in climate change, against right. the people who aren't recycling. Those right. are the people who get the bus, uh, uh, the people who like yes. us more. Yes, who might throw out a plastic bottle, for example. That's far worse than killing a baby. I mean, that plastic bottle might be swallowed by a fish. <laughs> who knows what would happen? 
Yes, that story about Argentina is happening just actually as we are recording this episode, Your Excellency. I'd yes. only heard about it recently, but one must think it's a domino that they saw Ireland do it. So they think, yes. well, you know, curaste it está, you know, mm-hmm. why not us? Yes, yes. I mean, even the bishops in this country could have stopped it if they wanted to. I mean, remember the Legion of Decency. Well, you don't, you're too young, but Father Chicago and I remember it. Oh, well yeah. Enough, <laughs> where the bishops essentially put uh, 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 the clamps on Hollywood by that Legion of Decency. If you ended up uh, as a what was known as a B picture, which had nothing to do with the quality of the picture, but it had to do with the impurity in it, where it was uh, a mortal sin to go. Uh, it was dead. You could, you know, if you were a good Catholic, you didn't go near those. You wouldn't even go to a theater that that showed them. I mean, well, that, they, that was the power of the Catholic hierarchy in this country. Well, they were so powerful, Jackson. Those scripts wouldn't even make you. They would make it so. There's all sorts of stories about Hitchcock having to reshoot parts because even the advanced copies got to the Legion of Decency. Legion of Decency will say no, this, this, and this, and then Hitchcock. Mm-hmm. And other people like him would have to go back and reshoot the movie to yes. make sure that yes. it would be approved. They'll say, look, you can release it as is, but we won't mm. approve it for Catholic audiences, which would, have right. ruined, which would have ruined these films. Yes, yes. And every single December 8th, you had to stand up and take the, the oath to, to avoid those films. I remember doing it as a child. Oh, yeah. yeah. We still do that here. Oh, you do, you do. Oh, yeah, okay. and uh, that, in fact, we've uh, modified the text to, you know, include videos, etc. cetera. Yes, and, yes. Um, uh, you know, if, if ever something was needed, uh, that's certainly in our own era. The other point that you made about the bishop stopping uh, abortion, uh, my, what I tell people all the time is that if Vatican II had not happened, there would be no abortion in America. Correct. Inconceivable. Inconceivable. And why aren't people like Pelosi and, and uh, Cuomo, why aren't they excommunicated? Excommunicated vitandos. In other words, that they are, they are people that have to be avoided for their support of abortion. Why are those people permitted to call themselves Catholics? I mean, if the bishops really wanted to defeat this horrid crime, they could do it by, by taking those steps. But instead, you know, they're having lunch with them and they're seen, you know, in good terms with them uh, as if nothing's wrong. They should be vitandi. They should be, that means, uh, they probably don't even have that in the Novus Ordo anymore, but in the, in the past, you know, the, the most severe form of excommunication was vitandus, which, which had certain uh, rules about it, that they had to be avoided, these people. And, and I often heard that, if they were to walk into a Catholic ceremony, that the ceremony would have to stop <laughs> until they left. I don't but, know if that was true I guess or it's not. The, the, le- the legal equivalent of with prejudice, I guess you're saying. Yes, oh. yes. And it was, uh, it was very severe. And that's, what, that's the penalty that should be put on these people who call themselves Catholics and yet uh, are responsible for the blood of innocent children. It's all over their hands. Well, thankfully for them, your Excellency, they'll just get to disappear at the end. That's right. They'll disappear. So they, they'll... they don't have to worry about hell because that, there's no such right. thing. Right. Uh, well, our, we will not uh, subject our listeners to any more of the so-called good news of Bergoglio and the Novus Ordo sect. 
I will end by uh, my usual set of questions, both to His Excellency and Father, which is what has transpired for you in, in the last uh, three months since our last episode? Well, we ordained a priest, so that's a big, it's big news here. Okay? But you did not, <laughs> but he did not crowd surf. No, he didn't crowd surf, no. Uh, so that was over in Italy, Verua Savoia in Italy, and uh, uh, it was a nice occasion because uh, all the priests, uh, Italian priests and some French priests uh, of that institute uh, got together with uh, myself and Bishop uh, Selway uh, and uh, uh, various other priests that came from France and uh, it was just a, a nice time for everybody, and uh, it was it, it enabled the family of Father Duterte to come from France and witness his his ordination. Uh, that was the primary purpose of it. Uh, so, uh, yeah, that's our big news. Now he will stay here at the seminary and teach at the seminary uh, until such time as things open up in France in such a way that he could go back to France. And by that, I mean a stable situation uh, um, in which uh, you know, he can function with another priest and, and uh, you know, without any theological or pastoral problems, let's put it that way. I was thinking you're, 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 hope, you're waiting for D-Day, Your Excellency. Uh, the invasion of Normandy by Father Duterte will be, <laughs> will be D-Day. Yes, well, he'll be a very, uh, let's say, powerful priest. He'll be, <laughs> uh, he's very bright and he's very well disciplined. Uh, he's, uh, uh, you know, he has all the qualities of a good priest, very pious, very regular, uh, everything that you would want in a, in a priest. And I think he will have a very good effect on the traditional movement as a whole. Uh, so, uh, uh, and I would like to see him go back to France because I think he could do the most good in France. For now, though, he's uh, he'll stay here and he'll be on our usual circuits. Uh, one of the things, one place he's going is Quebec uh, because uh, Father Ercole, uh can't do his missions in Quebec uh, because Father Romero had to go back to Argentina or someplace. He had to leave the country because of visa, visa question. So he's all by himself out in Seattle, and so he asked us to take over Quebec, at least for the time being. So he'll be going at least to a place where they speak French. and uh, uh, Of a kind, uh, of a kind. Of a, yes, the French are always very you know, careful about what's truly French and all. But I told him that that you know, effectively is still part of the French Empire, that they look to France much more than they look to Ottawa or anything West and that their eyes are fixed upon the transatlantic homeland very much and that they are more French than the French, uh, the, the Quebecois. And uh, as a matter of fact, a stop sign in France is spelled S-T-O-P, as you probably know from living there. It says stop. In, in, uh, in Canada, it's arrêt. <laughs> which means uh, uh, our English word would be arrest. In other words, it's a, that's the French word for stopping, arrêt. So the, the, they are more French than France because France has adopted the English word for stop at, in, uh, as their, part of their traffic signs. See? So th there you go. Uh, they are more French than the French. And... Uh, uh, so he will find that, and uh, you know, I think he'll enjoy that. It's it's sort of an unusual place because I said it's America that speaks French, 
I mean, when you're there, you think, well, this looks just like, you know, some town in America, but everyone speaks French. All the signs are in French. Everything is French. And that, that is a hard thing to put together. Uh, you know, whenever I visited Quebec, uh, Montreal and, and Quebec. Now, there's the old city of Quebec, which looks just like a 17th century French town. Mm. And it's very nice with walls and the whole bit. Yes, I've seen it. It's quite beautiful. Uh, yes, it's it's one of the most interesting cities in North America, I would say. Uh, but the rest of you know Canada is is pretty much something like you'd see in the U.S., uh, Montreal, and a modern city. And uh, but everyone speaks French, so it, it's it's hard to put those things together in in Quebec. Uh, I, Your Excellency, I, I just wanted to give a hat tip, and I think Father Chicada, you would be quite proud of uh, Luke Patrizzi who emceed the whole thing. I, I was just chatting with him on some details because I had helped with some of the photography ahead of time. And, and he said, just uh, in passing, he says, when you've done an Episcopal consecration, it's all, it's all easy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, yes. And, 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 I, and I couldn't help laughing and thought, you know, here I am completely focused on what happens next in the ordination. So I don't miss anything. And, and I thought, well, for him, this is downhill. He's already he's done an Episcopal consecration. He doesn't really have to. Do. Yes. And I thought he did. I've seen quite a bit of MC in my time, Yorsi, but I thought he did an excellent job. And I think you would have. Yes, he, he's one of our seminarians. In case people don't understand that, yes, he did the Episcopal consecration, and that was a three bishop consecration, which made it infinitely more complicated because each bishop has his entourage. You know, he's he's a personality, he's a dignitary, and they have this this group of people around him, and he has to coordinate all of the entourage and and tell them what to do with regard to those two other bishops. Uh, yes, it was. I mean, I don't know how he did it, and he did it practically single handed. I mean, he had some help with you know here and there in the other place, you know, people who were watching these people or that people. He had some assistant. Uh, MCs, but uh, I think only one, I think, was Father Saavedra, I think. But he really did the whole thing by himself, and, and it went off so smoothly. It was incredible. Uh, and so, yes, it was downhill all the way for a just a normal <laughs> ordination. Now, we say that laughingly because when we were first ordained, or, you know, early coming over, the idea of having an ordination, I mean, you would you would lose sleep at night thinking, how are you going to pull off this ordination as a bishop? You know, all of this, you, you, Father Chicago, you remember that. I mean, it yeah, just yeah. make you, you know, it, it was so much angst, you know. Yeah. Now it's like, well, what else? Are we, you know, we'll, you know, have a baptism. Well, we'll have an ordination. You know, it's, it's so routine that... Uh, uh, and fundamental I think that uh, I, I uh, tell... Um, I tell our MCs here that at St. Gertrude the Great, a pontifical high mass is almost the equivalent of a pickup basketball game. <laughs> yeah, you just get so used to it. It's like yeah. anything in life. You, know, you just get very used to it. But uh, I, I just remember as a young priest, just thinking, oh, what are we going to do? You know, uh, when uh, We never did a consecration, but just an yeah. ordination or just that uh, the bishop was coming and that we'd have to have even a misa cantata with the bishop. I'm like, what are we going to do? <laughs> uh, you know, I, and, and, and so it's kind of funny now. You know, well, and I, and I just think it was wonderful, too. You, ba you basically had a skeleton crew there, Your Excellency. You had 
uh, Luke and a couple, uh, maybe one other, you had uh, the other French seminarian, Henri as well. But in the sacristy, there's French, Italian, English getting bounced around. They had never met each other. They'd never worked, but they they managed to pull together the ceremony off flawlessly. And why? Well, because the church has this set of rubrics that you just follow. That's all you have to do. You don't have to make anything up. And yes, and he was calling out orders in Latin. I don't know if you know that during the mass. I wasn't close enough to hear it. Yes, mm-hmm. yes, he was calling out orders in Latin. Uh, you know, what do this now? Do this now? You know, surgite. That means get up. Uh, genuflexio. You know, he was he was uh, he was doing it. It worked very nicely. Yeah, there are many languages involved there. So you weren't you haven't had any ordinations up at St. Gertrude's, have you, Father? Uh, no, uh, but we've had a very busy month of, of May. Uh, May is always a big month uh, liturgically and devotionally up here at St. Gertrude the Great, the different additional devotions that we have. And then, of course, uh, we have uh, observances like um, Pentecost. We do our confirmations on the vigil of Pentecost in the morning. And so we have 36 people who received the sacrament of confirmation at the end of the uh, vigil. Uh, you have the, the uh, vigil ceremony, and uh, this year we also had a baptism. We um, received someone in the church and conditionally baptized him. And then after the uh, pontifical mass, you had the, uh, uh, you had the confirmations. And then uh, Pentecost, the next day, was celebrated uh, you know, with a, a pontifical mass. And then uh, eventually the uh, Feast of Corpus Christi, uh, on the, the Feast of Corpus Christi itself, we had a, um, uh, we uh, chanted at the divine office, the clergy did in, in church. We had mass every day before the Blessed Sacrament exposed. Then on Sunday, on the Sunday, we had a, uh, the Corpus Christi procession, uh, the external solemnity, and then uh, the kids uh, receiving uh, our Lord for the first time in Holy Communion. So it was very, um, uh, liturgically, it was a very rich, um, uh, very rich couple of weeks. Um, in terms of um, uh, projects and, and different things that we've accomplished during this past year, I managed to add a men's section to the choir, so we're able to broaden our musical repertory, which... Um, as a church musician, uh, something that uh, really pleased pleases me very much to have uh, that good music in church. Our uh, extremely talented uh, young organist who composed a, uh, a very nice setting of the mass that we used at Christmas, uh, composed a uh, uh, very good Eucharistic motet that uh, four minutes long, excellent, that we uh, uh, premiered on, uh, on Trinity Sunday. Um, this uh, coming summer, I have a number of uh, projects that I'd like to work on. The um, YAG, the Young Adults Get Together, uh, is taking uh, place the 22nd through the 24th here. We've been giving that our uh, uh, usual special publicity on Twitter and uh, via emails. So there's that to look forward to. The 17th, which is this coming Sunday, is the last day for registration, it looks like we'll have um, at least as many people uh, here at the um, uh, YAG, as we call it, uh, this year as we did previous years. 
One of my other summer projects is um, uh, figuring out and uh, doing some uh, more extensive fundraising for a mission in Nigeria. Uh, you, Stephen, uh, very kindly did some uh, videos that I think will uh, uh, will help show people exactly what we're supporting. To uh, support uh, uh, Father Nkamaki and his uh, now seminarians, uh, four seminarians in uh, Nigeria, you can go to the SGG Resources website. That's uh, www.sggresources.org. And if you go to the Bishop's Fund um, page on that, you can contribute to uh, our, our work. And uh, we are the uh, major lifeline, I guess, of the, the mission in Nigeria. And uh, that's something that we would like to uh, succeed, a really wonderful apostolate that Father Nkamaki, who is a, um, a graduate of uh, Most Holy Trinity Seminary as well, that he is uh, uh, pursuing. Uh, two of the seminarians that he was um, uh, uh, educating will be going in the fall to Most Holy Trinity, so that uh, there is a hope of him in the future getting help for his apostolate. So there's a, a lot to do, and God has been um, uh, good to us throughout the past couple of months, and we pray that he has, uh, continues to be good to us uh, in the future, especially with our mission apostolates. In case you want to follow the work of His Excellency and Father while you're waiting for the next installment of Francis Watchful, which will not be until after this summer, you can follow the work of His Excellency on his blog. He is not on Twitter. It's at inveritateblog.com. And the latest, the latest article on there as the time of this episode is his answers to a college student, part one, which... I, I I I was flabbergasted to read, but was is maybe my my favorite uh, article by His Excellency in the last twelve months, just because he is dealing with precisely what some young people are saying these days, and it's well worth your read. Uh, Father Chicada does have a blog as well at fatherchicada.com, but you can find him on Twitter and get a chance to see all of the great YAG promotions, which uh, have furnished some of my favorite tweets of this year um see when you graduate from most holy trinity you become a priest when you graduate from saint gertrude's you get married that's the, uh, <laughs> the difference yeah there, uh, there is a difference well, right. 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 they can't help it with all that triumphalism going on up there which is the <laughs> father, father was describing. as always your excellency and father thank you so much for your time and we look forward to hearing from you again, although I know you will not be looking forward to dealing with Bergoglio's nonsense. Thank you for your time. You're most welcome. God bless you all. <laughs> Thank you. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.